Everything I do turns into a disaster. I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown. I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Lights, please. From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today is the miracle the world has been waiting for, my lovely wife, Nakia, also known as The Unenthusiastic Critic. Hello. On today's episode, Nikki and I are continuing our December tradition of watching so-called Christmas-adjacent movies with her first viewing of Alfonso Cuaron's dystopian nativity story, Children of Men, from 2006. Dystopian Christmas movie feels about right for 2020, doesn't it? Sure. I mean, to be fair, the original nativity story was kind of dystopian, too, so... I mean... Was it dystopian? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> they just couldn't find a room. <laughs> no, they were basically refugees hiding from an oppressive government that wanted to kill their baby. So Sure. All right. What do you know about Children of Men? Um, well, as you mentioned, it's dystopian. Uh, I believe it is a world where there aren't babies or people can't have babies anymore, and then there's somehow a baby. <laughs> so that's what I know about Children of Men. Okay. That's accurate. Uh, written and directed by Alfonso Cuaron, who I think you usually like. Yes. Okay. So, as I said, written and directed by Alfonso Cuaron, loosely based on a novel by P.D. James. I haven't read the book, and I have actually seen conflicting reports about whether Cuaron has read the book. Uh, I saw a couple things that said he just sort of read an in a bridged synopsis of P.D. James's story. Well, what he has said about it is, the truth of the matter is that I didn't respond to the material. I was not interested in doing a science fiction film, and also the book takes place in a very posh universe. He said, I couldn't see myself making that movie. But, nevertheless, the premise of infertility kept on haunting me for weeks and weeks and weeks. And it's when I realized that the premise could serve as a metaphor for the fading sense of hope that humanity has today. Uh, so the movie apparently takes a lot of liberties from the book. Mm -hmm. P.D. James apparently liked it anyway. But what Quran says about it is that, you know, he says he wasn't interested in doing a futuristic science fiction movie. He knows people see the movie now as kind of a predictive near future movie. He saw it as basically being about the world we were all already living in at the time. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um... The film came out in 2006, so this was five years after 9-11. The Iraq War was still fresh in everyone's mind. The abuses in Abu Ghraib were recent news. There were refugee crises. There were immigration crises. Climate change was moving to the forefront of everyone's mind. This was the same year that An Inconvenient Truth came out. So Yeah, yes. So he basically viewed this as a film of its time, not as a prescient one. In fact, they shot the very first scene, in which was of a terrorist bombing in London, just a few weeks after July 7th, 2005, when there were four terrorist bombings in London. They basically ended up setting off a fake explosion just down the street from where a real explosion had happened a couple weeks earlier. This movie was in development for a long time. The studio didn't really get it, and... We're trying to figure out how to make it work. It was in development for so long that Quran actually went off and made the third Harry Potter movie in the middle of it. And 
one of the producers of this film said at that point they figured this movie was dead because nobody comes back from franchise money. They thought they'd never see Quaron again. Uh, but he says he kept thinking about it the whole time he was making that movie and came back to it. This film was released in the U.S. on Christmas Day in 2006, and it absolutely flopped. <laughs> it didn't even make its budget back. It was a disaster. The studio never did understand it, and they never figured out how to sell it. The marketing was not good. It didn't get any kind of Oscar push that year from the studio. And Quaron, dispirited, didn't make another movie for seven years hmm. until Gravity in 2013. The critics mostly liked it, though, even, like, reading the reviews that came out at the time, I can still see how the movie flopped. Like, here's Roger Ebert. Roger Ebert gave it three and a half stars out of four, but this is, this is part of his review. It is above all the look of Children of Men that stirs apprehension in the heart. Is this what we are all headed for? Watching Children of Men, I realized after a point that the sets and art design were so well done that I took it as a real place. Often I fear it will all come to this that the rule of law and the rights of men will be destroyed by sectarian mischief and nationalistic recklessness. Are we living in the last good times? I don't know that if I had read that review at Rest Christmas time, mm -hmm. I would have run right out to see this movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so you can sort of see how that happened. <laughs> but over the years, the film's reputation has only grown. In 2010, Peter Travers of Rolling Stone put Children of Men at number two on his best of the decade list behind only There Will Be Blood. Oh, and we didn't love yeah. There Will Be Blood, so let's, let's just say that's number one. He said, I thought director Alfonso Cuaron's film of P.D. James' futuristic political fable was good when it opened in 2006. After repeated viewings, I know Children of Men is indisputably great. No movie this decade was more redolent of sorrowful beauty and exhilarating action. And then around 2015, 2016, when Brexit was getting underway in the UK, the Syrian refugee crisis was happening in Europe, Trump was happening in the US, etc., this movie started to look even more relevant than it had been before. Around 2015, articles started appearing with titles like, Are We Living in the Dawning of Alfonso Cuaron's <laughs> Children of Men? And, The Syrian Refugee Crisis is Our Children of Men Moment. 2016, Abraham Reisman at Vulture said Alfonso Cuaron's overlooked 2006 masterpiece might be the most relevant film of our dark new century. In 2018, Anne Hornaday at the Washington Post named it one of the new canon films of the 21st century so far. And I actually looked at her list of the new canon films. It's a really good list. It's got a lot of our favorites on it, like Pan's Labyrinth, Spirited Away, Eternal Sunshine, Mudbound. Hmm. So this is good company. She said, Alfonso Cuaron's adaptation of the P.D. James novel evinced the perfect balance of technical prowess, propulsive storytelling, complex character development, and timeliness when it was released in 2006. But its depiction of a dystopian near future, what we ruefully now call the present, has proved to be not just visionary but prophetic. Its predictive value aside, it stands as a flawless movie, a masterwork of cinematic values at their purest, with each frame delivering emotion and information in equally compelling measure. So there you go. So after all that, what are you expecting from Children of Men? To be bummed out? <laughs> In a beautiful way, I guess? Flawlessly? Flawlessly bummed Flawlessly out? Flawlessly bummed like out. Like the Mortal Kombat flawless victory, they're ripping <laughs> your heart out. Um, so, okay. I will say to you and to any listeners out there who still haven't watched it, I, I think Children of Men is more fun than you probably think it is. Okay. Um, it's dark, to be sure. Mm -hmm. 
but it really does have some just mind-blowing action sequences. And it does feature a little, you know, comic relief in the form of Michael Caine as a farting, pot-smoking old hippie. So you got that to look forward to. You're making a face like that's not a draw. You like fart jokes more than I do, so... (laughs) And I do think there's a fundamentally, if tentatively, hopeful message at the end. Appropriate to the Christmas season. Is the baby Jesus? (laughs) I mean, not literally. The baby's Jesus. Okay. (laughs) All right, we're going to go watch it. As of this recording, Children of Men is available to stream free with ads from Peacock. And it's available to rent from all the other usual services. So when we get back, we'll talk about Children of Men. I can't really remember when I last had any hope. And I certainly can't remember when anyone else did either. Because really, since women stopped being able to have babies, what's left to hope for? The world was stunned today by the death of Diego Ricardo, the youngest person on the planet. The youngest person on Earth was 18 years, 4 months, 20 days, 16 hours, and 8 minutes old. The ultimate mystery, why are women infertile? Some say it's genetic experiments, pollution. Why do you think we can't make babies anymore? Doesn't matter. It's all over in 50 years. It's too late. Move along! Move along! Theo. I'm sorry about the theatrics. Police have been a pain lately. I haven't seen you for nearly 20 years. I need your help. Not for me, a girl. I need to get her to the coast, past security checkpoints. It's hard for me to look at you. He had your eyes. So why did you come to me? I trust you. Show him. Now you know what's at stake. We have to meet the boat. What is this boat? The human project of Centre Boat. The human project? It's the greatest minds in the world working for a new society. Your baby is the miracle the whole world has been waiting for. We will find a way to get you to the human project, I promise you. We're almost there, Keith. We're almost there. And we're back. During the break, Nikki and I watched Children of Men. So, Nakia, this movie has war, terrorism, (laughs) societal decay, summary executions, mass deportations, immigrants in cages, euthanasia, and a general feeling of hopelessness and despair. So, Christmas movie? Was there any Christmas in this? Uh, no. How is this Christmas adjacent? (laughs) The whole thing is a nativity story. Oh, okay. I was like, I was trying to remember if I saw any lights or a tree or anything. Okay. Actual Christmas in it? Yeah. Okay. Uh, sure. <laughs> it's a dark one, but okay. Yeah. It, it's, it's on the dark side. I can see how you got there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there is, and we can talk about it, but there is like a lot of religious yes. reference and imagery in the movie. 
But, you know, we'll get to that. So, in general, what did you think of Children of Men? In general, I really liked it. Okay. That it was really well done. Um, I thought it was... The sort of technical filmmaking was really good. Mm-hmm. I think he, Quaron used a lot of the, that sort of long shot. Yes. There's some incredible long takes in this movie. That make you feel as if you are in the scene with those people. So that was really effective um, and really, I'm not usually a, a big fan of sort of large action scenes. No, you don't like war movies. I don't, you don't like, like war that movies. Kind of and thing. oftentimes it's because I feel like I get lost in them. There's just so much going on and it's hard to sort of place myself. Yeah, it's right. Storytelling um, is messy. Yeah, whereas this was very directed and it was very clear and it was just such a tight narrative just overall. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was no hiding behind like quick camera movements or a whole lot of movement on this in the scene. Yeah, I, I I did really enjoy it. The story is actually incredibly simple. Yes. The world building is mm-hmm. more complex. And people have talked about how, you know, there's what's happening in the story on the surface of this movie. And then you can almost watch the entire thing just looking at the backgrounds mm-hmm. and seeing mm-hmm. what's there. And this is something Quaron said. He said, the cinematographer Emmanuel Lubezki said... We don't want to waste a single frame of this movie as far as conveying commentary on the state of mm-hmm, things. Mm-hmm. And that's how they made this entire movie. I, I almost did want to, after we watched it this time, because I've only seen it a couple of times, sit down and watch it again and just look at the backgrounds, mm-hmm. just study what's going on in the backgrounds. Because the the world feels so realistic, yes. almost to a fault at this point. But we don't get a lot of exposition. No. We get sort of snippets of news reels and things like that. But like you said, the background is just very layered, be it the graffiti or the posters uh, that are sort of plastered all over the walls. There's one scene where there's like a stroller sort of in a ditch. So yeah, it's very... And I also think it's... So what year are we... Is 20... What year does the movie take place? Yes, not what year we're in now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 2027. So it takes place in 2027. It was right. made in 2006. So what I really liked about it was that oftentimes when people do these sort of futuristic movies, it almost seems so far removed from where we are because mm-hmm. the technology is so advanced. So it's like, oh, the cars are flying and we have right. all this like, which I get and ha- it, there's it, it, that has its own appeal. But there was very little about this that didn't feel sort of so far out from where we are right now in terms of technology, in terms of, you know, advancement. It just felt very proximate in a way that I think few sort of dystopian films do because they're so, like, future state. Yeah. And that that was all very intentional and came about, Quran said, just from thinking about how this story would play out. Mm-hmm. And saying, he did say, which you'll appreciate, he said, we we wanted this to be the anti-Blade Runner. Mm. <laughs> that, you know, it wasn't going to be that world. And he said, so we started thinking about what the world would be like if it was like this. And a lot of stuff would just stop advancing. Mm-hmm. He said, the cars are different. He, there's some, you know, the cars are futuristic, quote unquote, designs right. a little bit. A little, yeah. But- just because he said people would need to get around. But like fashion just stopped. He basically said, we, we imagined forward to about 2010 and then said everything would stop. Mm. So maintenance of the cities and stuff would just sort of stop. Technological advancements would just sort of stop. Everything would just kind of be not not just the same, but actually decaying yeah. at this point. Yeah. Um, I think it's eerie 
how mm. much this movie doesn't even seem like it takes place in the future. Yeah, yeah. More so now, I think, than it did at the time. I mean, there's there's sites as well. I mean, obviously, like, people in cages. Yes. Things like that, that would have seemed more outrageous and fantastic in 2006. Though it was actually happening. But of yes. course. Yes. And that, <laughs> yes. this is another of Quarrel's yeah. points, which we'll get to. But, <laughs> yes, that was not a common sight. Yeah, yeah. Um, armies of police in riot gear, riding tanks, stuff like that was yeah. not a common sight in 2006 and is unfortunately now. So it's, it is sort of unnerving to watch this movie. Mm-hmm. You almost have to remind yourself, oh, this is supposed to be science fiction. Too close to home. <laughs> All right. Well, let's kind of go through this movie a little bit. Let's, let's start with, with Theo. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll talk about names as we go here. I mean, obviously that's theo it means god it's theology etc etc right uh, i don't think that stuff's very deep but i think it's there all the way throughout he ends up in sandals <laughs> he, do- he does he wears flip-flops through most of this movie which <laughs> like is christ not yeah. practical action gear mm-hmm. <laughs> i hadn't even thought of that <laughs> all right so tell me about theo uh first of all is this an actor you this seems like the kind of actor you would like He's got that kind of battered suitcase face that you like. Yeah, but I'm not attracted to him, really. No? I don't have that. So, yeah, I've seen Clive Owen in a couple of things, but I, I don't have a Clive Owen thing, and this okay. did not create a Clive Owen thing no. for me. No. I do tend to He's like... He's not suave, as Key says. I, <laughs> I do tend to like the beat-up-looking dudes, but, um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't feel it for him. Okay. <laughs> uh, yes, so Theo is a man resigned, basically. <laughs> Pretty much given up. Yeah. Pretty serious problem with alcohol at this point that he sort of just carries a quart of or a pint of whiskey just in his pocket while he's walking around. Well, doesn't he? He's somewhere in the movie. He says something like, at least with a hangover, I feel something yeah. or something. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, but we come to find out that he did at one point in his younger days, he was engaged in activism mm-hmm. with his then partner played by Julianne Moore. And so at one point he did care about something, and then they had a child, Dylan. And Dylan became ill with the flu and died, and Theo pretty much died with him. Right. So he he sort of he was sort of pre dystopian. Yeah, he was. He was. Already, he was given up. He was ready for the dystopia. The future he was like, of the world. Bring it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I like that very first scene because that's actually what saves his life. Mm. He goes into that coffee shop. And there's 20 people packed in there watching the TV because baby Diego has died. Mm-hmm. This is the youngest person on the planet who, it's a nice touch that he would become sort of a celebrity. Right. Just for being the youngest person on the planet, the mm-hmm. last baby born on Earth. And everybody's watching the thing and crying and, oh my God, baby Diego's dead. And he doesn't give a shit. No, he's just trying to get his coffee. He gets his coffee and he leaves and the place blows up right after he leaves. Yes. So his his not caring about anything actually saves his life there. <laughs> That's actually the first of our, our long tracking shots, too. Mm-hmm. It's not that long. I think it's, you know, a minute and a half, two minutes or whatever. But following him out of that coffee shop until the bomb goes off. Right. And you see a woman carrying her own arm. <laughs> well, you're not going to leave it. Well, you should, though. That arm is done. You don't want that arm. There's a scene in that opening scene of Saving Private Ryan. There's a guy standing there doing that, too. He's, like, looking around on the beach. Like, where'd I put that? Oh, there it is. And he picks up his own arm and walks off. It's not your arm anymore. <laughs> Just let that go. 
So he goes to work and he pretends that he's really upset about baby Diego so he can get off work. Mm-hmm. And again, just throughout all these scenes, we're just seeing bits and pieces of this world and without any explanation, really. Mm-hmm. And one of the things Quaron said is he said, he said he feels like cinema is very often held hostage to narrative hmm. and he has no trouble holding narrative hostage to cinema. So it's like he, he wants to do the visual scenes and he doesn't want to explain. He doesn't want to give a lot of exposition. So we see people like throwing stuff at the train. We don't know why. Right, right. We pass at the train station. There's people in cages. We don't really know why at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just all sort of through osmosis. We start to understand what this world feels like. Uh, and then he goes to see Jasper. Yes, your favorite character. <laughs> uh, Jasper seems to be Theo's pretty much only friend in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a nice little hideaway with his... Catatonic, catatonic wife, wife. We, and we're never really told what happens to nope. what happened to her i don't think and they smoke weed and talk about the what is it quietude quiet quietus quietus yes, which is, is the, <laughs> the drug the government has helpfully provided in case you want to in case you want to take the make a choice yeah <laughs> <laughs> just tap out um but yeah and it's it's this sort of almost idyllic little space for him a place of almost normalcy uh, and Jasper is very much, you know, in that sort of like baby boomer, sort of hippie role yeah. of, you know, he was a journalist, I believe, or a photographer. He, he, was, he was a cartoonist, cartoonist, political cartoonist. And so, you know, railing against the government, but it's obvious that that job has offered him a level of comfort <laughs> and ease in mm-hmm. his later years. Yeah, Jasper's an interesting character. You okay? It was horrible. I'm glad you don't take cream with sugar, Abina. Losing you, baby Diego, on the same day would be too hard to bear. Well, that was even worse, everybody crying. I mean, baby Diego, come on. That guy was a wanker. Yeah, but he was the youngest wanker on earth. Pull my finger, quick, quick. quick. Oh, Jasmine. Quick. Oh, fuck. That's disgusting. <laughs> Illegal immigrants taking them to Bex Hill. Poor Fujis. After escaping the worst atrocities and finally making it to England, our government hunts them down like cockroaches. Uh, just, just to, again to circle back to the religious thing. Mm-hmm. Jasper is they're they're not named in the Bible. In fact, I don't even think it says there were three of them. But by tradition, Jasper is one of the names of the three wise men. Mm. Uh, so that again, just these little gestures towards mm-hmm. the theology here. Um, and then we got the big one, which is the fishes. Yes, the fishes, the loaves and the fishes. Uh, the fishes are a radical <laughs> activist collective that is all about sort of fighting the anti-immigrant policies right. of Fujis. Fujis of the Fujis. Yes, which is again another line that just—I mean it. Resonated at the time and a lot of places in the world, but resonates now, too, where Jasper says something like, you know, the poor Fugees mm-hmm. escape the worst atrocities, finally make it here. To be treated like cockroaches. And rounds yeah. them up. Right. Yeah. But yeah, so we meet his, his ex, Julian. Yes. Why am I here, Jules? I need your help. I need transit papers. Not for me. A girl. She's a Fuji. I need to get her to the coast past security checkpoints. I haven't seen you for nearly 20 years, and you come asking me for transit papers can you do it i don't see how 
could ask your cousin. The government finances his arc of the arts. He has access to papers. Yeah, but he'd never do it. He would if you asked him. I can't. It's too dangerous. I can get you 5,000 pounds. I know you need the money. What are you talking about? I don't fucking need your money. Right. Sorry. My mistake. Julian, played by Julianne Moore, uh, is the one of the leaders of the fishes, um, and she pseudo kidnaps Theo to ask a favor. He has a cousin that works in government and can get sort of transit papers right. for a Fuji they are trying to get sort of across the border. She doesn't tell him why at that no, point. No, not initially, and it's clear that they have that they took the death or they responded to the death of their son in very different ways. Mm -hmm. And she sort of dug deeper into the activist world and right. he sort of receded into his own space. And he only agrees to help for money. Yes. So he does go see, he goes to see this cousin, which it's a nice scene uh, at Battersea station where they have created the arc of arts. Right. They have collected and tried to save all the art from around the world. And so it's a, it's a really great scene of Theo sort of walking in and there is the statue of David um, just sort of looming over the scene, but half of his leg is gone. Mm -hmm. They couldn't quite save all of him, I guess, in the in the unrest. Yeah, it's just a very, you know, it's, it's not an unfamiliar perspective in dystopia. There's always like an elite that is somehow removed from all the dirtiness of, you know, what's going on on the outside. So as Theo is even driving in, you see him drive past all of the, the dirt and the grime and sort of everything on the outside mm -hmm. into this very manicured, sterile and, and elite space mm -hmm. where his cousin lives. Uh, and they sit down to this ridiculous dinner. With uh, Picasso's. With Picasso's Guernica sort of right behind him, which is really because that, that entire piece is all about sort of war and right. unrest. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting little moment. They put, there's a there's a Banksy when he walks into yes, a, and apparently there was talk of having Banksy very involved in this movie. Mm. He was going to provide artwork throughout, mm -hmm. and Quaron says he actually met with a representative for Banksy, mm -hmm. and like, and it was all very secretive, and he had to go, you know, to some diner and sit down opposite this guy, and then after the meeting was over, somebody told him. This other guy came in and sat down right behind you listening to your conversation. That was probably Banksy. <laughs> so it, was this whole, uh, it never happened anyway, but he does have a few of his pieces in this movie. So he gets the transit papers and then he, uh, are we, we're just about at the car, the car scene there here, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, he gets the transit papers, um, but they inform him that, well, he can only get two, so he would need to go... And sort of be the escort. Right. His cousin could only get right. him papers in his name. Right. So he has to escort this person. So he's now even more involved than he wanted to be. So they go to... I guess they're on their way to the compound. I don't remember. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so it's it's Theo and Julian and Key, mm -hmm. the girl. Claire Hopeshaiti, uh Luke, Chuatel Ejiofor, who was another one of the fishes. Mm -hmm. And Miriam. Uh, played by Pam Ferris, mm -hmm. who you know is Miss Trunchbull. Oh, that is Miss Trunchbull. <laughs> <laughs> I know her best as Sister Evangelina on uh, Call the Midwife. That's now. hilarious. <laughs> Every time I think of that movie, I think about the chocolate cake, and now I want chocolate cake. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll, tr I'll try not to bring it up again. <laughs> but that car scene is incredible. It's a really amazing shot. Where they are attacked on the road. Again, It's I think it's a four-minute tracking mm -hmm. shot. 
from the moment they get in the car until four minutes later when they end up shooting the cops and and driving off. That's all one unbroken shot. Mm -hmm. There was some trickery in there, but we... I think we're so used now to assuming, oh, computers, you can just do that easy. Mm -hmm. They built basically this huge movie studio on top of the moving car. So the director, the cinematographer, three or four crew members doing sound and stuff were on top of that car Mm. while they were shooting that scene. Inside the car, there was like special 360 degree camera rig so they could... Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. shoot, get everybody without, like, it's just incredibly elaborate. And it's, it, it is absolutely brilliant. And you don't really think about it as you're watching no. it. It's just, it's very naturalistic. But yeah, that's a, that's a great scene. Yeah. And it's also just the way that the tension builds in that scene is really, really well done. You know, they all sort of pile into the car and Theo's sort of like, okay, I'm going to take a nap. And then he wakes up and that's when we see... Uh, a car in front of them that's on fire that sort of rolls across the road Blocking and sort of the blocks road. them in the road. And it just, it goes so quickly because in the moment before that, Theo and Julian had sort of been playing this game where they were sort of passing a ping pong ball <laughs> right. back and forth between their mouths. And it was this really cute moment of nostalgia for them and a moment of levity. And they just were flirting. Flirting and, and humanity. Were... And it was just really nice. And Key, who had been distrustful of him, was starting to warm up yeah. to him too and laughing along. And yeah, it was a really sweet little moment. And then she gets shot. Went to shit. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if there's a hotel around here. Julian promised me a little bit of action. You still like it in the afternoon? So what do you do? Rob a train? Blow up a building? He's a girl. You told me he was suave. One kid's a drunk. He's suave. Should have seen him in the old days when he was a real activist. Uh, you were the activist. I just wanted to get laid. One time, the police came to throw us out of our squat, and Theo invited them up for coffee to negotiate, only the coffee was spiked with ketamine. Oh, fuck off. You've got to be kidding. You know how many people I've tried I this with? You'll be happy to know out of the hundreds, hundreds. you are still the I'm only not doing one. It. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you the are. car's moving yes, too much. Yes, you are. Mm-hmm. You are. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> no, wait. Wait. Okay. <laughs> Do it again. Do it again. <laughs> Julian, that's disgusting. <laughs> Look out! Jesus! Shit. Go! 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 We're gonna make it! Come on! We're gonna oh, no, make I'm not gonna make it! I'm not gonna make it! So again, this like you know, and you see this in dystopian films of like these brief moments where you forget that you're in a terrible, shitty situation, right. and then you're immediately reminded. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was it was a really powerful scene. And again, we don't know why they're being attacked. Right. We don't know who's attacking them or, you know, it's just it just this thing that happens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Ju- Julian is shot through the throat. This was something else apparently the studio was not crazy about because Julianne Moore was basically the only recognizable face in this movie. <laughs> and she dies. And the only American. Like within 20 minutes. And yeah, she, <laughs> she dies pretty quickly. Yeah. So yeah, they do, they do make it back to the fish's compound. And while the fish leadership council whatever it is is arguing about picking a new leader key key decides to to tell theo what's going on yes so julian is told key that theo is really the only person that she can trust 
And so Key, standing among a group of milking cows... In a manger, in would a, you say? Sure. A manger-like place. Takes off her, her, her shirt and shows him her belly. <laughs> um, and sort of covers her breasts. And it's, it's a very... And he said, because you questioned the Christmas, I'm just going to point out, his first words are, Jesus Christ. Yes. So, underline, italicize bold, um, <laughs> if you at all doubt it. So, yeah, I mean, that scene, the religious overtones were absolutely overtones. Like, there was yeah. no doubt about what was happening there. But there was also this other piece of it for me that was a little bit... I had trouble with Key. Mm, um, okay. I had trouble with the character of Key. I get it, but she feels... She felt more like a symbol than a person. Mm-hmm. I mean, even just her name, her name is Key, and you know I have problems with, that takes me back to Buffy, and I just can't. Um, (laughs) Key. But it was that same sort of thing of just, like, you're not an actual person, like, you're Mm -hmm. a device. Mm -hmm. And she, and so, Key is, she is a symbol, she's a symbol of hope, she's a symbol of, like, the continuation of humanity, et cetera, et cetera. And that is a choice to put that in the body of a black immigrant but he, when you put that in the context of like amongst livestock, then you have a black body uh, among livestock when black bodies for so long, the, the currency, particularly for like black slave women for so long was like their ability to reproduce more that's slaves. Interesting. And, so, and she even says something about the cows, they cut off their tits right, to get more to milk. To get more milk. Why not just have more? Right. And so... Th- I, I saw it both ways, and, and I think that was the point where I became a little bit more troubled with her as a character. See, I thought you'd be excited to see that the future of humanity was a black woman. And I am. I was. But here's, and here's the thing. Because dystopian films have a tendency, and television shows, of not addressing race in an explicit way. And it is extremely frustrating. So it's either they're totally white spaces, and there are no people of color for whatever reason in this future that they're envisioning. Despite the fact that the whole point of dystopian films is like they are taking all of the sort of injustices and inequities of present day and sort of elevating them, and then like flash forwarding. 20 years or however long, right? So why wouldn't race come with that? Right. Like, race would absolutely be a part. Like, race is not magically gone just because we've gone 20, 50 years in advance. And so things, so you saw with Handmaid's Tale, where they were sort of exploring this idea of, like, woman as brood cow sort of thing, right? Mm -hmm. And it was this idea that, like, misogyny and sexism would absolutely be in the future and would be a part of the oppression. (laughs) But race somehow wouldn't. Yeah. Um, That that wouldn't be a factor in things. And so... Yes, it's great to see people of color in this future. Like, that's great that this is not an all-white space. But dystopian societies are all rooted in this idea of, like, oppression and colonialism. Like, all of that is informed by a very real history of racism. And so it's always interesting to me when, like, that is not a thing. And I think that it's touched on a little bit. When the Fishes Council is talking about, they're they're having this debate about whether or not they should just sort of go public with Key. Right. And they're like, well, they're not going to let a poor black immigrant be the face of the future of humanity. They're right. going to take this baby and give it to, I think he's, he said, like a posh a, black a woman. A posh black woman. A posh black um, English right. woman. So again, still a black woman. Like, so race is still, race is not really well, the thing. It's the class. Be. Well, no, I understand. But it's the class. You But you think they couldn't just give that baby to a white woman? Like they could, absolutely. Um, so it's more of a sort of a classing, which is also interesting because <laughs> that then reminded me of the Montgomery bus boycott. Mm-hmm. The history is that it yes. was Rosa Parks that started that. Right. <laughs> Before Rosa Parks. Before Rosa Parks. Yes. 
there was Claudette Colvin. Yes. Who was, you know, a like a darker skinned young girl. Was she a single mother? She was a single, or she was pregnant, she was pregnant I think. Right. And it was like she was not going to be. Right. She could not be the face. The of face the... of this movement, right? And so, like, there was a whole bunch of shit going on with Key for me, <laughs> which is interesting. I don't, but I don't. I think very little of that was like intended. Well, I think it was intended simply on the sort of simplistic symbolic level yes that you you said you were like i get it mm-hmm. i mean i i think that's all quran yes. intended yes he said the fact of having an african child or the son of an african girl has to do with the fact that humanity started in africa but also to put the future in the hands of the dispossessed and the lower caste of humanity and to create a new humanity to spring out of that mm. mm-hmm. so that was his intention and that was not And again, I haven't read the book, but in the book, it's apparently Julian who's pregnant. Oh. Key does not exist in the book. Okay. So she was created for this movie. Okay. So I think that's an improvement. Sure. But yeah, I understand your problems with it. I think she's, I don't, I don't see her as not being a character. I think she has a personality. Mm. I think she has a sense of humor. She has some fucked up ideas for what to name the kid. (laughs) And I, I like I like the moment where she tells him she's a virgin. Mm. And then, like, and she's like ridiculous, dude. Are you <laughs> yeah. serious? Yeah. Who's the father? We said, I'm a virgin. Sorry. <laughs> Child, be wicked, eh? Yeah, it would. <laughs> Fuck knows. I don't know most of the wanker's name. <laughs> you know, when I started picking. Thought I catch the pest, but then my belly started getting big. Nobody ever told me these things. I never seen a pregnant woman before, but I knew. I felt like a freak. I didn't tell nobody. I thought about the quietest thing. Supposed to be suave, pretty music and all that. Then the baby kicked. I feel it. Little bastard was alive, and I feel it, and me too. I am alive. But even that, isn't she, doesn't she basically, like, she was basically prostituting herself. We don't know, but that's a that Well, that she slept with... She said, I didn't know a lot of their names, is right. what she said. So she could have just been... I was more worried about catching a sexually transmitted disease. Like, she right. said something to that effect. Right. Of like, so there's then all this, this insinuation. Well, that, you, like, would, you wouldn't be worried about pregnancy in this world. Well, you so wouldn't be. Right. No, that's very true. But so then adding the sort of the promiscuousness. To, uh, yeah, so it's just, it was complicated. He's complicated mm-hmm. for me. Okay, that's fair. Okay, so where are we? So what we learn is Luke is a bad guy. Chiwetel well, is a bad Well, he has an agenda. Guy. Yes. Well, he had Julian killed. <laughs> So he could take over the fishes and use this baby for his political purposes. Yes. Because Julian had refused, had said, we are never going to use this baby for political purposes. Mm-hmm. Luke said, fuck that. We're, gonna, we're absolutely going to do that. Which again, all seems very realistic. Yeah. So now they're running from the fishes. Yes. Now they're basically running from everybody at this point. Pretty much. So we escape with Miriam. Mm-hmm. And we run back to Jasper. Yes. Which does not turn out to be doing Jasper any favors. No. But luckily Jasper was sort of on his way out anyway. (laughs) Really. Yes, they hide out for a few days at Jasper's place. And he is able to hook them up with one of his contacts at one of the sort of detention centers. 
Um, yes, a cop he yeah, sells weed to. That he knows to be a fascist. <laughs> um, and basically says, you know, go find this guy. He will take you into the immigration. Get you to the- a boat. The whole, plan, the whole plan has always been to get her to this boat run by something called the Human Project. And again, no, no exposition. No. We just have to assume that's a good thing. Yeah. Presumably some do-gooder group that is trying to save humanity. Mm-hmm. On a boat called Tomorrow. Of course. <laughs> Not any heavy-handedness there. So, yes, Jasper knows this guy, this cop named Sid. He sells weed to. It's going to help him get to a boat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the fishes find them at Jasper's. Yes, and Jasper, you know, is able to get Key and Theo to leave, and he stays behind after he, and then he, you know, assists the death of his wife. Um, yeah, he gets that done first, which is He gets is good. that done first, and then uh, the fishes pretty much, once he won't give up any information, they murder him, execution style. There's a scene I really like after that where they, I think they take refuge in an abandoned school, mm-hmm. which is one of the things you look at. It's like, oh yeah, I guess the schools would all be abandoned yes. at this point. Uh, but that's that's a nice quiet scene in the middle of all this chaos, and that's... Where we get a little exposition, we get Miriam talking about, because she was she was a nurse, she mm-hmm. was a midwife, mm-hmm. and how started noticing that the schedule was... Clearing up. Clearing up. Yeah. That there were no new pregnancies There would be a coming. couple miscarriages, and then there were only miscarriages, and then yeah. there was nothing. Yeah. She's got a line there. As the sound of the playgrounds faded, the despair set in. Very odd what happens in the world without children's voices. Yeah, it's really powerful. Which is, again, it's one of those, um, there was an article recently in the New Statesman, Gavin Jacobson, talking about this movie uh, in the context of the pandemic right now, Mm. and saying, you know, there's an elementary school across the street from my apartment, I'm so used to hearing Mm. the children screaming every day, and, you know, that eerie quiet that has fallen over the neighborhood now. Yeah. Yeah, this movie's too... (laughs) Too on the nose. Too on the nose for this moment. Too perfectly timed. All right, now we're going off to meet Sid. Yeah, that's a bad idea. (laughs) Played by Peter Cullen. Yes, so they meet Sid, and he takes them to... Here's how you know there's something wrong with Sid. Sid talks about himself in the third person. Sid does talk about himself in the third person. That is a red flag, man. Yes, you don't want to do that. (laughs) And a cop who doesn't... She's clearly eight months pregnant. (laughs) <laughs> how she gets through most of this movie with no one being like you're clearly oh, okay all right but again no one sure, is looking for that i guess yeah but like it's that like, is the last it's been but then she goes into labor and people are like since What's anyone was pregnant she just pissed herself it's fine <laughs> everybody thinks it's impossible nobody's looking for it I, she's just got a little pot and also belly she should have took this trip earlier control in her like in her her development, like this is a. Are you blaming her for this? A little bit. I mean, it's a little tricky. Make this trip at the five six month mark. Don't make this trip at the eight month mark where you're about to like that baby's head is hanging out between we don't need your legs. You going into like, labor we don't got time the bus for this. To the detainment center. You know what's not good for a sneaky mission? Contractions. <laughs> <laughs> so. All right. Well, if it ever happens to us, we'll try to. I mean, a just than that. plan a little better. <laughs> At the eight month mark, that baby can come out at any time, so it's just bad planning. <laughs> All right, so Sid's Sid's getting them to this detainment center, Something, refugee yeah, yeah. camp, basically sort of way station. Yeah, yeah. 
so basically, as Jasper says, they're breaking into prison. Um, this is not a not a happy place. No, it's uh, horrifying. So you know, again, we're sort of on the bus with the other. I mean, de- they're detainees, really. Yes. With the other detainees, and you're we're driving by and we're seeing all the other immigrants in the cages, and some of them are. Um, kneeled down on the floor with hoods over their head. That always bodes with, well. Right, it's just, and then you see the bodies yeah. in the next scene. Um, it's horrifying. Um, and again, it's like, well, that is a thing that happens mm-hmm. that's not science fiction by that's any stretch of the imagination. So Key starts to go into labor on the bus. Her water breaks, and the guard comes on, and there's this really tense moment, and Miriam tries to sort of distract him. And so he just grabs her, takes her off the bus, forces her down on her knees, and puts a hood over her head, and that's... So we know that's... That's the end of Miriam. Goodbye, Miriam. Yeah. Yes. A British citizen. So, which is, it's like, also one of the things that is... Just like how these things become real when they happen to the people that they're not supposed to happen to. Like it wasn't really supposed to happen to Miriam. It's supposed to happen to immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but anyway, so Key and Theo get into the detention center and they meet their next contact, Marika, who does not speak English, mm-hmm. um, but takes them to this flop house, really, where they can just sort of. I gotta stay say, I was night. super sketchy about Marika, which she yeah. turned out to be like a fucking boss, girl. man. Yeah, like Marika <laughs> was ride or die. But yes, there was no way for them to know that. But there's a moment, you know, obviously everything turns to shit and they're being chased later in this movie. But there's a moment where they have to push through a door. Yes. And Marika goes first. And, and she's like, hand, hand me Marika the baby. And I was like, oh, she's going to take thought, the fucking oh, baby. Shit. She's going <laughs> to book it with that baby. <laughs> but that's one of the great things about this movie is that there are those, like, there is hope. People, there are good people. Oh, no, absolutely. There are good people. Who, there are people who will go out of their way to help other people, which is, I think, the one sort of glimmer of hope in this film is that there is some humanity left even in these that, moments. That was exactly the intent yeah. and that was what Quran said, you know, talking about he did see this ultimately as a hopeful movie. Mm-hmm. As far as the hope we can have looking at the world, that's what there is, mm-hmm. is the hope that individual people will do the right thing and not give up. And yeah. Not a lot. No. But they're there. It is there. Um so yeah, and Key is in labor. Yes. So she has a baby, the first baby in 18 years. Did the baby work for you? What do you mean, did the baby work? It was work? a digital baby. If you look too closely oh. at it, it's not a great baby. I, I guess I wasn't looking too okay, closely. Okay, so it worked. That's I good. Yeah, it was okay. Yeah, I didn't notice. <laughs> it was like, that was a fake baby. Um, no, that was a pretty good baby. Uh, yeah, so she has a baby, poor thing, in a world that isn't prepared to help women have babies. So she's on this dirty mattress on a floor with no meds and only Theo there to just sort of... Theo does well, though. No, he does. He Theo, coaches her through. Theo, and I, tr- I tried to figure out the exact moment in this movie where Theo just becomes... Again, what you were just saying about people having to step up. Because I think there is a moment at some point where he is just willing to die for this girl. and her. Baby. I think when he sees her in the barn. You think right then? Yeah. Because still, he still seems cynical and sort of depressive. Mm-hmm. The moment it struck me was that scene in the school where Miriam is talking about the miscarriages and all of that. Mm-hmm. And she said, so I was there at the end. He says, now you get to be there at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Which is such a completely optimistic. Yeah sunny thing to say coming from him that it's sort of startling in mm-hmm. that moment that mm-hmm. he says that. But no, anyway. So yes, we have a baby now. We have a baby. A little girl. A little girl. Yeah, and it's inconvenient. <laughs> Babies always are. <laughs> 
Because Sid comes back uh, after realizing that the fishes were looking for Theo and Key. There's a big reward. And there's a big reward. And uh, so he's like, something must be special about these two people. Mm. And he finds out that Key has a baby. Everybody, when they see this baby, is are just... Odd. Yeah. It's amazing. And so he takes them at gunpoint and is basically planning to turn them in. But Marika fights back. And then Theo fights. And they are able to escape Sid. Well, fortunately, there's a whole uprising mm-hmm. happening around them at mm-hmm. this time. Yeah. Lucas talked all along about how the uprising is coming. And mm-hmm. Then mm-hmm. apparently there's this revolution happening, at least in this in this camp. Yeah. So this is the chaos that they're now trying to navigate to get to the boat. Right. Is going through, you know, there's gunfights happening in the streets and stuff is blowing up and it's insane. This is where we get the the longest extended tracking shot in the movie, which is like seven minutes long. Mm-hmm. It starts, Luke finds them, Luke and the fishes find them and take Key and the baby away. Yeah. yeah. So it starts right there, and then there's a whole seven-minute sequence of Theo getting through the city, trying to find her, going through these various firefights and mm-hmm. things, mm-hmm. where he into the building, all the way up until the moment where he finds her again. That's all one unbroken shot, which is just incredible. It's really well done, yeah. Yeah, no, it's a really great shot. And I mean, it's, um, there's a moment where there's like blood splatter on the camera. Mm -hmm. So which, you know, just further enhances the feeling of like you being in the scene with Theo. But yeah, so he finds Key. I mean, just on that again. You got to admire. It's one thing to talk about the long tracking shots in like a Scorsese film, where it's they're just walking through mm-hmm. a hotel. Like the stuff he tries to pull off in a long tracking shot. Tanks are blowing up, yeah. and firefights are happening. And even in that car scene, Theo and Julian shooting the ping pong ball into each other's mouths was all in that tracking shot yep. too. It's like it's in absolutely insane to yeah. even try to do this stuff. Mm-hmm. And there, is, I'm sure there's some digital trickery there. It's, it's you know, not just one unbroken shot. It's made to look like it is. But it's still, it's just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so now where are we? We're in the, we're in the building. Mm-hmm. Soldiers are shooting outside. Fishes are shooting inside. Everybody's shooting everybody. <laughs> Luke is in there. What Luke? I don't remember what happens to Luke. Luke gets shot. I believe Luke gets shot, yes. Yeah. Or blown up. But yes, Luke does not make it. Uh, the baby is screaming this whole time. Mm-hmm. And that actually turns out to be what saves them. Yes. Uh, they walk through the corridors of the building and all of the people that had sort of been huddled in there come out because of the screams of the baby. And it's very much this sort of touch the hem of his garment mm-hmm. sort of moment where they're sort of reaching out to catch a glimpse of the baby or to touch the baby's foot. And the whole time you're worried that someone's going to try to snatch the baby. Right. Um, but none of them do. It is this just like reverence and this moment of immense hope for all of these people who've just been living in this terrible place for so long. And so Theo and Key and the baby sort of float down through this building. It's almost as if they were crowd surfing but not crowd surfing because Mm -hmm. it was that sort of that sort of momentum and energy of protection and so when they get to the bottom of the building and they come to the soldiers even the soldiers are like cease fire right and they stop shooting and this hush falls like some of them are in tears and some of them are kneeling at the sight of the baby and you know for a good minute or so that's what i really love about it perfectly quiet and everyone is just 
it is as if they've seen God. Like it is a very, it's a really amazing moment. And then just as they sort of pass out, <laughs> the shooting and the bombing starts up again. And it's just like, that would be, I, I love that it doesn't last. Yeah. That's what I yeah. love about that scene. Yeah. It would be just over the top cheesy. If everybody just sort of laid down said, arms right, and we're not going to fight anymore. <laughs> yeah, There's a new like, hope. No, it lasts like about a, 60 seconds yep. and then somebody shoots at somebody else and it all starts up again. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. And that's pretty much it. Marika the boss gets us to the boat. Yeah. And they, Theo's rowing the boat out into the fog, hoping this damn human project boat is going to show up where it's supposed to be. Uh, turn, turns out he's he's uh, not doing so well. He was wounded, <laughs> which I don't know how he would have gotten through all of that without <laughs> a scratch. Um, but he was pretty badly wounded, and he's bleeding out. And... He's helping to teach her how to be a good mommy. So the baby's crying and he's oh, like, yeah, you know, if you sweet. put the baby on the shoulder and just pat the baby gently. Teaches her how to birth you know, the baby. She'll calm down. And it's this really lovely little moment of like one last chance at sort of pseudo fatherhood for him. And she tells him that she's going to name the little girl Dylan after his son. And then he dies. And then he dies. We're pretty sure he dies, right? He He's dead. <laughs> Koran said, when asked about, like, the whole nativity story thing, he says, yeah, you can read it that way. But he said it's also, Theo is also Moses, who, mm. you know, never gets to see the, pro- dies before he actually sees the promised land. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then tomorrow shows up. Yes. The boat. Which we don't know what the fuck that is. Nope. <laughs> but we're hoping that <laughs> it's a better place. The end of the movie. Yes. This this is a great movie. It is. It's really well done. Did you find it depressing? Um. No. And that may have been, I don't know. Maybe I would have if it weren't this year. Mm-hmm. And I think Coron did a really good job of, it was dystopian. I don't think it was nihilistic. Yeah. No, that's a good way to put it. Um, so I think that that's why I didn't find it depressing because there was still hope. There was still like, there are human beings out there who, you know, want a better world and will help you. And so, no, I mean, he's definitely not a, cheery film but i didn't find it depressing though but a hopeful christmas message a hopeful christmas message yeah Yeah. anything else to say about children of men no i don't think so that was great that's our show we want to thank you for listening and we hope you'll join us again for the next episode of the unenthusiastic critic Nikia for the final installment of our Christmas-adjacent marathon and our last episode of 2020, I think we're going to watch what is probably the most obscure film we've ever watched. This is not one of those everyone but you has seen this movie movies. This is one of those this is a little movie I saw as a kid when I was way too young to have seen it, and for some reason it stuck with me all these years. Okay. Uh, But it was actually one of the first films I thought of when we started doing Christmas-adjacent movies. Because it does feature an evil bank robber, played by Christopher Plummer, dressed as Santa Claus. We're going to be watching Daryl Duke's 1978 thriller, The Silent Partner. Never heard of it. I figured you had never heard of it. My guess is you are not alone in that. I, I haven't seen it in many years. I don't actually remember it that well. But I think this largely forgotten movie might be poised for a rediscovery. I have seen a few people mentioning it on Twitter lately. I noticed Turner Classic Movies had it available this month, and it's currently playing on the Criterion channel. So I I think we're going to get in on the ground floor of this reclaimed Christmas classic. Mm. 
Exciting. Uh, this is, by the way, another movie in your favorite genre, mediocre white men making really bad decisions. Awesome. That's your favorite, right? We can call it that, sure. Silent Partner is available, as mentioned, through Turner Classic Movies and the Criterion Channel. It's also streaming for Hulu Live subscribers, and it's available to rent from Amazon and other services. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com, where you can find additional episodes, subscribe to the podcast, leave us a comment, or make a donation to support our work. You can also find us on Twitter at Free Range Critic, or send an email to michael at unaffiliatedcritic.com. In any of these places, we encourage you to suggest a film Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means conning your partner into watching movies they really, really don't want to watch. Uh, David Ehrlich interviewed uh, Claire Hopeshaidi, who plays Key, about, you know, this movie and the general dystopian honesty of it, mm-hmm. and sort of the state of the world in general. And she said, I guess it's like taking tiles off the wall, and the wall behind it is so moldy and rotten, and it looks shittier than when the tiles were on. But at least now you can fix the wall and put the tiles back up. There's no point in keeping them up there because the wall was fucked in the first place. <laughs> so that's how I feel about humanity. It's a moldy wall underneath <laughs> some pretty tiles. We've taken the tiles off now. We're addressing the mold. Then we have to repair the walls. There's a tiny, tiny bit of hope, I hope, somewhere in there. Right. That sounds about right. Sure. Some shitty, fucked up walls. I think we're still taking off the tiles, but okay. You think there's still too many tiles? I think there's still too many tiles. (laughs)